Well, good morning. I'm the invader. I've never been introduced that way before, so uh, I'll try to live up to that today. Um, by the way, you only have one boss, buddy, and it's not me, right? Amen to that. So uh, uh, it's great. Thank you for this warm welcome. Uh, thank you for the introduction, the kind words, and uh, thank you for allowing me to be in the presence of the people who invest in internal riches, you guys. Um, what a wonderful title to your church. Um, today, as uh, Ryan indicated, and thank you, Ryan, for leading us in worship, uh, my message is one of a journey, okay? Um, so we can kind of put that to rest. There's always a big question, what's the visiting guy going to talk about, right? So we are very cryptic when we tell one another, right? We send these messages back and forth, and the title is um, A Journey. A journey with Christ, but I'm going to ask you to look at it through the lens of the Apostle Paul today, okay? Um, but before we do that, I'm going to ask if I could just open in a quick prayer because I know that we're a praying group. So let's do that one more time. So, Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that we could be in this place this morning, a place that you are with us and your, your invitation is extended from our hearts. We thank you that we could worship you, for you are worthy we thank you, Lord, that we could share um, in the heart of oneness that you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that as we come today, that your word uh, wants to speak to us. So I pray, Lord, um, that as I stand here before this, uh, these assemblies of brothers and sisters, that you would speak indeed. And anything that was not of you, God, I pray that it would just simply fall on deaf ears, but that for what you have for us today, Lord. Would you open up our hearts to receive it so that we might be transformed in the likeness of you and have oneness with you. We pray all this in the matchless name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. thank you. So I was preparing for this message and I didn't honestly know how I wanted to start it. How do you launch into this thing? Two days ago, I was asked to uh, officiate a memorial service. Uh, a friend of mine called. His father had passed away. His father was 85 years old, lived a full life. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I'm sure all of you have attended at one time a service. And it begins to put things in a different perspective sometimes when you stand there and recognize that our time uh, here is already defined, right? And so what came to me, and I want, I'd like to begin this, was the psalmist wrote upon this. You don't have to jump to your Bibles because it's only one short verse, but I'm going to share it with you to set us in that place. I'm going to ask you today to reflect on some things in your heart. It, we have a tendency when we hear God's word to look over to the person to our left and right. No, oh, that's good for them. Right, But let's look here. What does God have for us today, including myself? There's nothing more cutting I can tell you than to write it and then have to speak it. So don't think I'm exempt from this. I'm not. So here's the reflection that begins. In Psalm 90, the psalmist writes this in verse 12. It says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom Teach us to number our days so that we can be wise about the days we're here. Numbering our days has a lot in that little statement, does it not? 
I don't believe it's just a reflection of time. I, be, I believe it's a reflection of our journey that we're on with Christ. Uh, so I want you to think about that, a reflection for us to recognize where we've been and maybe why things happened and what was going on in that past and where we're going. You see, our journey is a journey of life itself. And so the psalmist was asking us to think about that, to teach us, to reflect on that. And let me give you a little perspective. I don't mean to be that downer guy here, but I want to put it in that proper context. If you're 25 years old, you have about 19,000 days left to reflect on, on average. If you're 35 years old, that drops to 15,000. If you're 55, it's about eight. I know. If you're in that range where I'm at, and I'll stop at that range, around 65, it's a little over 4,000 according to the actuary tables. Now, we all know that God is the one who determines our days, but that gives us a little bit of a perspective, does it not? It gives us a perspective for those of us who are already gone beyond that midpoint to look in the rearview mirror and all of us have a rearview mirror, and it also begins to challenge us as we look forward. And so let's begin today reflecting on that journey, can we? And what remains? Like all journeys, they have their ups and downs, their bumps, their bruises, right? In fact, it reminds me of a journey I went with with my wife, Sue. We went on a vacation. We had the good fortune. I was over in Europe on business. We extended that. She came over. And we decided to have this wonderful vacation plan. Now, many of you probably have been here. You've planned the entire vacation, right? And it's going to go accordingly, right? So I'll share you my experience. Uh, the first day that we began this, we were going to drive throughout the Netherlands. We were going to drive through for a little bit of France, down into Germany. And it was just mapped out, all the places we wanted to see. So I got that rental car and filled it up with gas. We got a good night's sleep. The next morning, we got up ready to go. Put the key in the car, turned it on, started out the parking area, went down the road, and all of a sudden, that car started doing this. It was jerking. It was spitting. I thought, oh my goodness, what's wrong? Pulled over, sat there, turned it off, and my wife, the wisest one, said to me, what kind of gas did you put in it? Oh. You got it. I put regular gas in a diesel engine. Now, one learning point is uh, you can fit the nozzle over there in their gas tanks. I didn't know that. And there was no markings on the car. At least I'm trying to get out of this so I don't look too stupid, right? <laughs> so here I am. So here's our journey that's starting. My wife has photos of me sitting up in the front cab of that, of that flatbed tow truck as we hauled that thing off. And for the next six hours, we sat in the auto dealership while they dropped the whole lower unit, flushed it and everything, and they handed me a bill that was, I think, greater than the uh, actual vacation itself, right? So that was the beginning of our journey, and I wish I could tell you that everything went smoothly after that, but it didn't. So we headed down to southern Germany. It was a place called Baden-Baden. We were going to finally rest uh, and get into that place where we could enjoy ourselves. And as we put the GPS in for the, for the center, if you will, or for the city of Baden-Baden, I'm driving down, and the little man who had this wonderful English voice said, 
you know, take the roundabout and then turn left. And I did, and it put me on a very narrow uh, cobblestone one-way street with four-story buildings on it, and I'm going down there, and it says, your destination is right ahead. And I'm thinking, this is fantastic. Except for the fact it delivered me right into the city center with the fountain and everything, and no cars were allowed. Now, I don't know about your spouse, but my spouse was on the floorboard laughing, and I'm alone. <laughs> if you know my wife, that would really make some sense. So I'm driving in the city center, and I've got all of these German women yelling at me, nine, 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 like you're not allowed here. So I have to drive across and get out the back on the one-way place. That was our journey. And you know, life is a lot like that, isn't it? <laughs> you begin to put it together a way in which we want it to go. But I bet you if you shared your journey here <clears throat> today, most of us would come to that place that it didn't go exactly the way we wanted it to go. And so, we need to reflect on that journey. Because you know what? Nevertheless... It is the journey that really begins to define who we are and begins to define who God is in our life, is it not? It is that life experience. You know, the Apostle Paul had a journey. So today we're going to look at that and we're going to see how your journey mirrors his journey. And I think you might be surprised in many cases. You see, God has a plan for your life and my life, just like he did for Paul's life. It may not always be clear to us, um, and it certainly may not seem like a perfect plan, but that may be because we don't always see it the way God sees it. We don't have the insight of God, the mind of God, fully. See, he's doing things in your life, in our lives, for a reason. And we must ask ourselves, where are we heading, and what does this final destination look like? And to maybe give us a little perspective, two words come up, and we need to wrestle with it. Is this life about happiness, or is it about holiness? Happiness versus holiness, and beginning there begins to give us some context as to how we might see Paul's journey and our journey. Now, you know Paul. I don't need to give you a big overview, but just to kind of bring us all collectively together, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he didn't start there, did he? No, his name was Saul. He was born in Tarsus in Turkey, which gave him Roman citizenship. He would say he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born into the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, this guy's resume was pretty impressive. His father was a Pharisee. He studied under the Pharisees of Pharisees, a man by the name of Gamaliel. This gentleman was part of the Sanhedrin at one point in his career, the 70 ruling uh, over um, the Jewish nation, if you will. They were kind of like the Supreme Court in today's stature. And this gentleman was not only on that, at one point he held the highest position, not necessarily the priest, but more of a president's position within that. To be selected uh, by a rabbi like Gamaliel, uh, as Paul or Saul was, was like being selected to enter into Harvard. It was a prestigious thing. The brightest were often selected by the most highest 
of rabbis, which is kind of interesting because you look at who Jesus selected, right? Hmm. So here's the starting point. <clears throat> and Saul was on a journey. He was persecuting Christ's church. What he didn't know is where his real starting point was. The same starting point you and I have. We all have. Romans 3 tells us very clearly that no one is righteous, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, this world will tell you something different. This world will tell you that there are some better than others, higher than others, maybe okay in their walk. But the word of God tells us completely different. He says we all start at that same place, separated from God. No one is righteous, not one. We all begin here, but sadly, few realize it. And Paul was one of the few who didn't realize it. He didn't know. He didn't know he was a blind man. Jesus tells us throughout Scripture that blind men cannot see, that deaf cannot hear, and that a deceived person doesn't even know they're deceived. And I'll leave you or begin this journey with this statement. A tree cannot grow. It cannot grow except from the root from which it sprang. Hmm. What root did we originally spring from? You see, our growth comes from the root of which we sprang. The fall of man is the fall of humility. It is the separation from God. That is the root from which we all sprang. It is a prideful root. It is a root from which every human springs forth and it is that root of self. Pride takes over our lives, even without us knowing it sometimes. Our, begin, our beginnings truly are rooted in this. You know, as Wayne said, I'm a father of six, a grandfather of four, and I can tell you this, uh, I never had to teach my children to be self-focused. I didn't have to tell them to be selfish. I didn't have to teach them how to be naughty. They had it down, didn't they? Why is that? Because that is the root from which we all come from. That's from what, the root from which we sprang. Hmm. The Apostle Paul, however, didn't believe that. He didn't know that. He believed he was in a good place. He believed he was right with God. He believed he could save himself. And he relied on two things for his salvation that oftentimes get very confusing to be right with God. He believed his works were going to get him there, and he believed his religion was going to get him there. In fact, Paul thought he was defending God by defending his religion. That's why he was persecuting the followers of Jesus. And by doing so, he thought he was righteous with God. In fact, listen to these words in Scripture. In Acts 8, Luke writes this, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Wow. This is a righteous man. 
Acts 9 says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. All in the name of God. Paul himself writes these words in Philippians 3, verses 5 through 6. He says, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I had more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. That's how he saw himself. Paul's root was of pride, a root grounded in the flesh and in religion, a root that focused on his works and his position, right? And a root that was all about me. That's the root from which we all sprang from in the beginning. It's all about us. Saul was dead. He was dead and he didn't even know it. He was separated from the true and living God and he hadn't a clue. How about today? What do we see in the world today? Sadly, there are thousands that are sitting in churches today whom are in the same situation. They're relying on their religion and their works for their salvation to be right with God. The root from which they come is the tree for which they are. It hadn't changed, or it hasn't changed in some. Which brings us to a place in this first phase of Paul's life, this first season, that we must ask ourselves, how about us? How about us? Were we once that tree? Are we still that tree? Do we know that we were blind? Or are we still blind? Do you know if you have eyes to see? Season two, Paul's life. Let's call this the eyes to see. A new life. Again, no tree can grow except from the root from which it sprang. Life comes from death, actually. The new life offered by Jesus comes only when a person realizes that their old life must be put to death. Hmm. How does a person get to this place? How do they become aware of this? How do they have eyes to see this? The answer, I think, is found in Paul's experience. Acts 9, verse 3 through 6 says these words. This is the road to Damascus. We all know this story, but listen carefully. As he, that's Saul, neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. You see, 
we find our eyes to see when we have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And not only that, we have a personal encounter with our own sin. Being in the presence of God demands the same response from every one of us. And that response is a deep understanding whom God is and whom we are not. We see similar experiences written in Isaiah and in Revelation. Isaiah, in chapter 6, when he comes in the presence of God, face down. John has a similar experience in Revelation, face down. Paul comes before a holy Jesus, falls down. Why? Why did they fall down? I believe there's two revelations that occur when we're in the presence of God. And that is this, the holiness of God is revealed. Who he is in that amazing place, we begin to see the glimpse of who he is, this burning bush. A holy God. None like him. None. And that brings forth the second revelation for us. That we cannot stand before a holy God on our own. Not on our own merits. We cannot be in the presence of this king in our condition. That sin cuts. Cuts to the core, does it not? We see ourselves at that moment for whom we truly are. Utterly hopeless and helpless. And that's not a bad thing. God reveals that because he loves us. And this, this revelation produces the pathway for our salvation. There is no other way. what happens is it produces a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. We're humbled, our prideful nature is exposed, and we know it. We know we've been blind. And we cannot see the things of God without Him. We're stripped away to a new understanding of our prideful and self-reliant nature, and that produces this truth to us. We have nothing to offer. Paul had this experience on that road, did he not? Came face to face with a holy God named Jesus. And he was exposed of his sin, a sin that is personal against Jesus. Let me say that again. A sin that is personal against Jesus. Hear these words again. Here's what the Lord said to him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I'm the Lord. Your persecution is against me personally. See, our sin is not a sin against a moral measurement. It's not a sin against some sort of moral standard out there. Our sin is a sin against a holy God. And it is very personal. It is against him. And it is against the king. Isaiah said those words. Oh, woe is me. David said those words. I sin against you and you alone. We come to that place when we have that personal experience with God. 
And as a reminder to Paul or Saul at that time, Jesus puts him in a spiritual timeout, didn't he? What happened? He went blind for three days. He finds himself in utter darkness, cannot see. To drive that point across, I believe. Do you hear me, Saul? Do you know it? Do you know you're blind without me? Three days. Now, the number three is an amazing number in the Bible. Most of you might know this. It is the day or the number for resurrection of new life. On the third day, what happened? Paul was given the sight. And from that point on, he was given new eyes to see. He never saw it again the same. He saw it totally different after that. Because, why? Because he had a new life. Let me say it again. He had a new life. He was born again. Not an improved life. Not a life that has been changed. My brother back there says it. It's not as if he got a new life. No, he got a new life. He was born again. Remember, no tree can grow except from the root from which it sprang. Paul could only receive a new life if he received a new seed, a seed that could produce a new root. And in that instance, Paul received a new life because he received the seed of Jesus from the root of Jesse. That seed is sealed, and that seed is the Holy Spirit that comes in. And now, when you receive it, you're one with a new root system, one that will be needed to grow and water and flourish. It begins a journey. So we have to ask ourselves, how about us? Have we had that encounter? Have you been in the presence of the Holy One? Were you face down? Did you hear His voice? Did you recognize that sin was personal against Him and only Him? Did you receive the broken spirit and the contrite heart? Did you know you were blind? And then, the most glorious thing, did you receive him? For which you were given a new seed and new eyes to see and a new life. Not as if it's a new life, a new life. Amen? Paul received that which brought him into his next season of life, season three. Let's title this The Desert, hmm. The Wilderness Experience. Hmm. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and I don't like to knock pastors, but this struck me because I love them. They're shepherds, they've been called. But what struck me was this. One pastor was explaining salvation and asking to another. And he asked this pastor, as the callers were calling in, how a person can be saved. And I, I think he didn't mean to say it in this way, but this is what came out. This other pastor said, it's so simple, a child can do it. Hmm. He said, repeat these words. And he proceeded with a sinner's prayer. We've all done that. I've done it. And it got me to think, 
What's our Western worldview? What does it look like of salvation today? It kind of puts it on a shelf for us to select when we desire. As if I can go down these aisles in a grocery store and say, you know, I'm going to pick up a couple of cans of salvation today and put it in my cart. It's so simple, even a child can do it. I don't know how that strikes you. It saddens me. It kind of sickens me. For it cheapens the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quite frankly, you study the word of God, it's not exactly that simple, is it? There's a lot to it. I'm not saying that that God makes it difficult. He doesn't. But there's a lot packed into this message. Hear the words of Jesus as he calls his disciples. Luke 9.23, he says to them, If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him what? Deny himself. Pick up this cross and follow me. Hmm. Not so sure when I really press into that. Seems so simple. How simple is it for me to deny myself? How simple is it for you to deny yourself? To go on the cross and say, crucify me. Again, no tree can grow except from the root from which it sprang. After Paul's conversion, we often overlook a simple and short verse found in Galatians chapter 115. Luke writes this, and Paul quotes it. He says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being, but rather... I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Paul went into the desert. He went into the wilderness. We see a similar path taken by our Lord and Savior. He comes up out of the water of Jordan. And where is he sent by the Holy Spirit? Into the wilderness, into the Jordan. Why? Why did Paul and Jesus both have to go into that desert, that wilderness place? In fact, why did many of the prophets go into the wilderness? Why does God lead the entire Israel nation out of Egypt into the wilderness? Why? You know, I just returned from Israel a few weeks ago. In that time, I spent three days in the desert, in the wilderness. Not sure when I talk about the wilderness or the desert, what that conjures up in your head, I can tell you what I thought. When I, somebody says the wilderness, I thought kind of green trees, kind of you know, ferocious animals. Wilderness kind of looks like northern Michigan. Somebody told me it was a desert. I kind of look, looked at it as a Sahara with these flowing sand dunes, right? Neither of which was what I found. The desert that the Bible depicts is a place that offers nothing. There's no grass or vegetation. There's no trees or shade. It is hot. It holds no water. And it is lifeless. To look at it, one would think they are on a planet like Mars or the moon. It is mountainous, and you can see for miles from peak to peak. And the vastness is absolutely overwhelming. And you feel this 
place of putting yourself in the proper perspective. Like I'm in this, a dot in this vastness. And I'm alone. It goes on and on, this wilderness. The Jewish people have a name for this type of desert or wilderness. They call it the Yeshimon. The translation is not only a desert or wilderness, but a wasteland. It is a place where no one can survive without intervention. You can't do it. Hmm. Why does God lead his people into the desert? To put us in that place. You see, the desert is the place that the physical world is put to death. It becomes a dry and parched land for us. It's a place where the root of pride, the one that we receive through Adam, is absolutely destroyed. And a new root of humility is planted. It is the root of Christ. It can only be found in the desert. The desert is where we hear God. In that desert, there's wind. The Ruach HaKadosh, the Holy Spirit, where God speaks to us and draws us to him, where we cry out for God because we cannot survive without him. A place we must deny ourselves because you know what? I can't get there. It isn't about me anymore. And I must pick up my cross and be crucified to follow him. In our new life, that new person realizes that and we cannot survive without Mayin, Cain, living water. You know, when you're in the desert, you're not going to make it. You need living water. You need the bread of life. You cannot survive without Christ in this new life. In fact, you can't have new life without this. So that, des- that desert begins to define us. It gives us our identity. It's where God tells you who you are and how valued you are. Stop a minute. Think about that. The world wants to define you. The world wants to place a value on you. And God says, no, I'm taking you out of that place and I'm putting you in this place so you can hear me. But no one wants to go into the desert. No one wants to be tested by God. We abhor the desert. In fact, when we find ourselves in the desert, what do we do? We complain, just like the Israelites. I want to go back to Egypt. Get me out of here. Right? Why? Because we don't see it for what it is. We don't know why we're there. All sorts of things in our Western worldview comes upon us. This is wrong. Something's terribly wrong with my Christian life. I'm in that place. But if we'd only stop and listen, if we'd only step back and say, Lord, show me, we would begin to see the things as God sees them. Then the desert can become beautiful. It can be a place where we crucify our flesh and give life to the Spirit. It is the place for which God shows us his love for us. And he transforms us into his image so that we might have oneness with him for which is why he came. After Paul had this experience, what was his life like? Hmm. Who was Paul after Jesus did his work in the desert? Think about it. 
This is the man for which God used to write 13 books, more than any other in the Bible. This is the man that God used to preach to the Gentiles and to the world. This is the man that healed the hurting. A man that cast out demons. A man that raised the dead. This is what happens that God can do when we go into the desert and are filled by the Holy Spirit. Then we can have oneness with him. This is the root of humility, for it is not Paul who does any of it, is it? He tells us that. It is the root established in Christ. The old root of relying on ourselves is put to death. The root of pride is crucified. This crucifixion happens in the desert, in our wilderness, in our Yeshimon, in that place. Which begs the question, does it not? How about us? Have we been in that desert? What's our response when we're in the desert? What's our prayer life look like when we're in the desert? Get me out of here. Have we ever stopped to ask, Lord, what is it you want me to see? What is it that you're teaching me? What is it that you're crucifying in me? What is it that you're bringing me through for a purpose greater than I can ever imagine? Do we understand our Yeshimon? Season four, Paul's life. Now he's the called one, his ministry. Remember, remember his journey up to this point. Now he goes. You know, today, we like to skip a couple of those steps, don't we? I got saved, I'm ready. I got saved, I'm ready to go. Boy, did I get taught. Did you get taught? Now, Paul is the called one. Now he's ready to go. No tree can grow except from the root from which it sprang. Paul has a new life, a new root system, and a new calling in his life. He no longer lives for himself, but he lives for Christ. Listen to these words. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. Paul sees it differently. He has a new life. He doesn't live anymore for himself. He lives for Christ. How'd that happen? His journey. I wonder, if people look at us as Christians today, what do they see? Do they see a life that we no longer live for ourselves but for Christ? Do they see an entire body of believers whom have been crucified in the desert and now live by the faith of Christ? You know, as I traveled throughout Israel, my pastor who was leading the journey pointed out two different types of trees. The first tree was called the Arar tree and the second the Acacia tree. The Arar tree was green and leafy. It's 105 degrees while I'm there. And this tree is amazingly beautiful. It's got flowering green bulbs on it. They were large. They looked like they would be a wonderful fruit. He took that fruit, he pulled it off, and he barely put any pressure. It absolutely exploded. It was empty. There was nothing inside it. Hmm. 
In fact, if you took that fruit, it was poisonous. I'm wondering, what tree are we? The other tree was an acacia tree. On the outside, it was dry. Didn't didn't look very impressive. Kind of short, squatty. But one of the things that was most interesting about an acacia tree is it had incredibly deep roots. In fact, these roots allowed it to be in these wadi systems that when the torrential rains came and the season of life opened up upon it and the winds blew, it stood. (laughs) Not only did it stand, it actually grew deeper. Hmm. And the Bedouins in that land the desert people, the shepherds, they look at it completely differently than maybe you and I would. You see, they see an acacia tree very differently. The acacia tree gives them life, gives them shade when they need it. It gives them protection from the wind. It gives them fire when they have it, have that need. And its roots provide Not only the generation that they are experienced, but their children are going to have the same thing over and over again because of that acacia tree. They see it differently, constant, strong, never changing. So I ask again, what do people see when they see us as believers in Christ? Do they see an arar tree that looks beautiful and perfect on the outside? but offers nothing on the inside? Or do they see the acacia tree, a tree that has deep roots, one that can withstand the rain and the wind when the storms of life come upon us, a tree that is so deep that it can prevail through drought and heat and the desert itself, a tree that offers itself as a source of life for all who are around it. Paul understood who he was he grasped the very truth that he was born of a new seed. And that new seed was destined to produce fruit, good fruit. It was Paul's very nature and mission in life to love others. It was his very fiber that propelled him to serve the needs of those around him. Paul received that great commission just like it has been given to us in his life. And he ran with it. He devoured it. He actually obsessed over it, did he not? He totally consumed him. That's what his life was. Do any of these words touch our soul today? Do the words of the Lord bring any response from us today? Do we even hear the words today? Every day throughout the ancient paths, the Israelites began their day repeating the Shema. It was a reminder to them of who they were, who God was, and what they were called to do. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is is your God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and love others as yourself. There is no greater law when asked by Jesus. This is it. That's an acacia tree, is it not? That's a tree that has to have deep roots. Paul understood that. He drank of his calling. He understood that it was a gift given to him was something he could not be kept for himself. He had to share it. He had to proclaim it. He had to go out. You couldn't keep him silent. And he did it. He shared the good news. He loved his God and he loved others. 
which challenges us. How about us? How are we doing? Have you received the calling in your life? You know that anointing doesn't come from some sort of position. I know Wayne well enough, and I know he would say this. You don't have to be a a pastor. In fact, Peter says you're all priests. Every one of us. Do you know it? It's pretty straightforward. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love others. What are we waiting for? Season five, the last stage, probably the most difficult one for us as believers to grasp and to truly accept in our lives. We'll call this the season, Paul the persecuted one, season of suffering. Hmm. Oftentimes, one of the most difficult seasons that we find is that final season that we reach in our journey with Christ that's found in the most difficult of truths. And that truth is this. The truth is actually contrary to what we're taught in many churches today, not this one, and it's a Western prosperity gospel. That Western prosperity gospel says, and it's very popular, that because our Lord loves us, we're going to have a wonderful life. In fact, a life that we will be showered with earthly blessings. And we deserve it. That's going around out there. Nothing could be further from the truth of God's word than this lie that is formed truly in the pit of hell, authored by Satan himself. The backbone of that lie is humanism. Humanism is fostered by the notion that I am at the center of the universe, that the world and everything in it was formed for my pleasure. And it has come into our churches today. That somehow God himself was created for my pleasure, for my will. And that my life should be filled with comfort and ease. You know, I had to check my prayer. That'll get you to think about what lens you're looking through, what you pray for. Don't get me wrong. God loves us. He showers us with blessings. But boy, that can go astray. That issue that you and I face in this whole idea of suffering and versus this this prosperity gospel is this. (laughs) The Bible doesn't make such statements. It doesn't tell us that we're going to have an easy, comfortable life, does it? In fact, it tells us a completely different story. It's a narrative that says that if I and you follow Jesus, we will be persecuted for his namesake. Hmm. A narrative that states if the world hated Jesus, it will hate us too. And thus, oftentimes we enter into the season of suffering. The place where our calling leads us into the fires of hell to do God's work. A place where we are asked to start walking, to leave our family, our homes, and travel a thousand miles just like Abraham did. 
A place where we stand against the Philistine giant in our lives with only a rock and we are asked the question, will you take your stone and throw it? A place where we must decide whether we will bow before a false god or be thrown into a fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Paul faced that suffering in his life. Hear his words found in 2 Corinthians. He's literally bragging about some things and he's doing it for a purpose and a point. 2 Corinthians Chapter 11, 23 through 28 says this, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger of rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and I have got, often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressures the burden and concern for all the churches. Sound like an easy life? And so we, as followers of him, must ask this question. If those that went before us suffered their lives for the glory of God, why would I not face such suffering in my journey? Why should I be exempt from such suffering? And it's important that we separate suffering that comes from God's calling or perhaps our walk with him and those trying times that we are being chastened by God due to our sin or flesh desires. Those are different. I'm talking about doing God's work. I'm talking about walking. I'm talking about being hated because I proclaim, you proclaim the name of Jesus. Too often I hear Christian brothers or sisters say things like, God led me to suffer, when in fact the very sin in their lives led them there. I'm not talking about that. True suffering for the Lord is found when we stand for our God against the world and against an enemy that hates, hates us. And as a, as a result, we will face suffering. You know, we have brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for Christ right now in ways we don't even have a clue in the Western world because they are spreading the gospel. They are being imprisoned, beaten, brought to death because they stand for Christ. Some, some face terrible hardships at the hand of Satan himself because they have stood in the gap for the hurting. What about us? Are we willing to risk it all for Jesus? Really? Are we willing to accept whatever suffering may, that we may face because we have come to a place where we believe that the work of Jesus is worth the suffering, even if it costs me my life or the life of a loved one? Several years ago, I came 
across a sermon by a pastor named Paris Reedhead. Preached in the early 60s. It actually came to me a couple weeks before the passing of my oldest son, who was 32 years old at the time with a traumatic brain injury. Two weeks before that, this came. And help me reflect on some things. The name of the sermon was Ten Shekels in a Shirt. I don't remember anything about the sermon except what he said this, these words. It cut me. He said, every one of us who is a follower of Jesus must come to this place in their life where they answer this question. Is God the means or the ends? Is he the means or the ends in your life? Because he said if he's the ends, then you have put him in his proper place because you're the means. But if you're the means or if you're the end, then he's become the means. And your prayer life and the way you see things will be different. Hmm. kind of sat me back on my heels. Kind of sat me back and I started looking through the lens a little differently and some of the things that I had questioned him on. See, a few years ago in 2016, I went to Africa uh, with Set Free Ministries and believe me, this isn't to elevate me. Quite frankly, it's to scare me. Um, and I received a microorganism uh, while I was over there. Don't ask me why or how, but what that did, it creates blood clotting in my heart. Okay, uh, and that clotting begins to have a fibrosis state. It covers the heart. Uh, it's called endomyocardial fibrosis. Generally, they find it on the autopsy table. It was a miracle that they found it so early. There's no cure for it. I'm on blood thinner. But I go to Mayo Clinic every year. There's two of us in the study. The other gentleman is not doing well, and here I am today. But I'll tell you something. It began for me to look at it differently. And I'm not saying I got that because I suffered for Christ, but I was doing his work. We're going to go through life and things aren't going to come out real smooth. And we're Christians. And we got to ask this question why not us? Why do we get exempt? Why should we? In fact, how are we going to respond when the day of that happens? Here's what. We need to ask, in your life, my life, is he the end and we're the means? Are we still sitting on the throne and we're the end and he's the means? See, when he becomes the end and we're the means, it becomes a lot more clear. I know who he is and I know who I am and I know his word and so do you and it puts things in the proper perspective. How do we respond? matters. I began this message, and I'll end it, with a reflection of Psalm 90, which the psalmist asked us, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may gain wisdom. You are on a life journey. Each one of you has a perfect plan. Do you see it? Do you know where you're at? Can you look in the rearview mirror and go through those seasons with him? Are you aware of the seasons of life, both the past and the current? Where are you at today? You stuck? You moving? And finally, let us all reflect on this statement. No tree 
can grow except from the root it sprang. Are you still hanging on to that old root? Or have you planted the new one with Jesus Christ that bears much fruit? Blessings to all of you. Thank you for allowing me to share today.